Welcome, everybody, to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? I'm doing all right. It's very windy outside. <laughs> yes. Um, the weather in Calgary has been a little nuts over the last little while. Uh, things warmed up because it's spring. And, you know, all the snow melted and it was blue skies. And then it snowed and we were blanketed with snow through the week. And then it all melted in the space of like a day yesterday. And it was nice and sunny today. And now it's super windy and we're going to be getting like a weird weather front through the week of like snow and and rain and thunderstorms and tornadoes and hail and 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 and, (laughs) make it sound like the end of the world well you know the thing is is we broke it that is true we We broke broke the world well we broke climate yeah and so now we get crazy weather and uh yep how are you i'm doing great thanks for asking yeah of course uh but what are we watching today today sarah we are watching the Mole People mm-hmm. from 1956, uh, directed by Virgil Vogel, and it is a universal picture. So I have to ask this, because mm. I think it's very important to ask this. Mm. My touchstone with Mole People is Mole Man in Marvel Comics. Yeah, pretty much same. Okay. Yeah. Uh, did Mole People predate Mole Man? Or did Mole Man come out before Mole People? Uh, Fantastic Four number one, which is the first appearance of Mole Man, uh, came out in 1961, I believe. Okay, so so five years after. Yeah, so this predates it. So Stan Lee probably had the Mole People idea floating in his brain, and it came out in Fantastic Four. Yeah, um, the Mole People in this movie are very much like Mole People. You know, in the same way that like. (laughs) As opposed to people that are underground. Yeah, it's not like a metaphorical thing. I mean, there are people underground in this movie, Mm -hmm. um, but then there are also just straight up mole people. Okay. Who are people, but also moles. What's your familiarity with moles in general as like an animal? Moles are great. I love them. They're so cute and terrifying looking, especially um <laughs> the star-nosed mole. The star-nosed mole. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I I don't find moles cute. I can understand <laughs> how people do, especially like once they've been kind of like anthropomorphized and like Disneyfied. You can thank Redwall for my appreciation of moles TBH. Yeah, I think there's like a lot of animals that you know, I mean, just look at like what Mickey Mouse has done for like the rodent community in terms of like people's <laughs> like perceptions of like mice as being cute, you know? Sure. But like moles are gross. <laughs> like they're like gross weirdo animals with like gross looking mouths. And like, you know, of course the star nose mole has its like weird gross tentacle nose. Their eyes are like so small that like mostly you can't tell they have them. They're just weird. They got weird like, okay, so they've got like your like rodent like nose 
like where it's like, oh, you look like an animal. And then they're like hands just straight up look like human hands. If you were wearing like some cheap monster gloves <laughs> that you got at like a Halloween store. I didn't realize you were so anti-mole. I don't know about anti-mole. That's, that's, that's a little harsh. I just think they're weird looking okay. and gross um, and not, not cute, but I can understand why people think they're cute. Okay. I, I get it. So, um, before we dip into talking about the mole people, um, I wanted to take an opportunity to talk about the Hollywood production code. All right. We've covered the production code in a bonus episode on the, I'll say, regular show. Mm -hmm. And then we talked about HUAC. I feel like it's related to the production code in a bonus episode on Patreon. Right. And we've also, like, as the production code has been, like, revised and changed over time, we've sort of checked in with it and what those yeah. revisions were. And that's what uh, we're doing right now. It's a production code revision check-in. Play theme music now. <laughs> so um, we're in 1956, mm -hmm. uh, late 1956. And so to kind of give people a sense of, like, where the production code is at... In the 1950s, Hollywood came under increased competition uh, for, you know, eyes, for audience, butts and seats, uh, initially from television, right? Like, why go to the movies when you can stay at home and watch TV? And that's where we got widescreen and 3D and all these gimmicks designed to give you, like, an experience you couldn't get on TV. And part of that thrust of like we're going to compete with tv by giving people something they can't see on tv was also in like content because tv had an even more strict censorship code than movies did mm -hmm. so you know we've seen this in kind of like movie b movies turning away from westerns to monster movies and horror because you can watch a western like at any time of day on tv because they're the cheapest fucking things to make. Um, <laughs> Especially in LA. In the 1950s. Whereas like you can't get like scary violent horror movies on TV. Right? Now another avenue through which Hollywood was facing fierce competition in the 1950s was in the theaters themselves. Um, the 1948 Paramount decision from the Supreme Court meant that movie studios couldn't own their own theaters anymore, which meant that they didn't have a way to block foreign films mm. from the American market, which meant that suddenly in the 1950s, you know, Americans were getting exposed to world cinema again for really like the first time since the 1920s. Um, so, you know, you had the breakthrough of Japanese cinema with Rashomon and you had Italian neorealist cinema with like bicycle thieves coming in and you had like all these new kinds of movies and all of these movies weren't also not subject to the production code. So you had like Diabolique coming mm -hmm. out in America and being like a big hit um, because it was showing and talking about and doing things that like you couldn't do in a Hollywood movie. And that was also cutting into Hollywood's like profit margins. So there was almost kind of this like arms race in the fifties between like who can show the most explicit content. Another big part of this um, growing arms race 
was that in 1952, the Supreme Court overturned their 1915 decision that said that movies weren't protected by First Amendment rights. So in 1915, they had said, well, movies are a product being sold. They're not speech. They're not art. And they overturned that in 1952. And now movies were art and therefore were protected by the First Amendment, which meant that the government couldn't censor them. Mm. which took the fangs out of like the threat of government coming in and censoring movies, which had led to the creation of the production code administration. Because of course the PCA was the industry regulating itself kind of body. Yeah. Because if we're going to get regulated, we'd rather have it be done by ourselves rather than the government or Mm -hmm. an external organization. Right. Exactly. So that also was weakening sort of the bargaining chips of the PCA. Mm -hmm. So, There was all this motivation to stop paying attention to it and its own like power of enforcement was getting weaker. And so what you had throughout the 1950s was directors like Otto Preminger and Billy Wilder deciding to just like release movies without code approval. Like some like it hot. Right. Or anatomy of a murder. Yeah. These were real big studio movies that were getting put out without code approval because there was already a growing number of theaters, especially like urban theaters that were showing movies without code approval. Um, A lot of like the drive through and grindhouse cinemas didn't give a shit about code approval. You know, they were showing Roger Corman movies and weird (laughs) exploitation (laughs) movies and, and things like that. And so in light of this and in light of like these changing times... A number of revisions were made to the production code in 1956 um, to try and make it more like relevant, basically. Okay. Um, And these revisions came into effect in December 1956. And our movie today, uh, The Mole People, came out on December 1st of that year. So probably like one of the first movies, not just horror movies, having to deal with these new revisions. So actually, uh, this movie still came in under the old rules, uh, just because of like, when it was getting made and when it was getting PCA approval. So by the time it was released, the new rules were in effect. But in the process of being made, it was subject to the old rules. But I wanted to talk about the new rules today. Because chronology. Right. And uh, so I didn't forget to talk about them later. (laughs) So for the most part, if you want like a full overview of everything that's in the code, um, check out our production code episode. And as I've mentioned, we've like talked about numerous revisions to the code piecemeal as time has gone on. Um, So I'm just going to talk about like what the changes were. I'm not going to like reread the whole thing, right? Yeah. Um, So one of the first sections of the code after the general principles is um, section one, crimes against the law, how to depict criminal things in movies. Uh, The first subsection of that is on murder. The points under murder are like, the technique of murder must be presented in a way that will not inspire imitation. Uh, Brutal killings are not to be presented in detail and revenge in modern times shall not be justified. In 1956, a fourth point was added to this list, which was, Mercy killing shall never be made to seem right or permissible. Huh. You always have to wonder, like... Why? Right? It's like when you see, like, a a microwave with, like, a sticker on it that says, like, do not place cat inside, and you're like, oh... Someone put a cat inside. Yeah, exactly. Now, subsection three, under Crimes Against the Law, um, that was about drugs. Now, from 1930 to 1946, subsection three read, 
illegal drug traffic must never be presented. In 1946, that was changed to the illegal drug traffic must not be portrayed in such a way as to stimulate curiosity concerning the use of or traffic in such drugs, nor shall scenes be approved which show the use of illegal drugs or their effects in detail. Then in December 1956, this was changed to illegal drug traffic must never be presented. <laughs> we tried to give you some leeway and you ruined it right. for everyone. When was Alice in Wonderland from Disney? 1951. Okay. Now, continuing on this topic of drugs, a number of new points were added. So we have here um, subsection 9. Drug addiction or the illicit traffic in addiction-producing drugs shall not be shown if the portrayal, A, tends in any manner to encourage, stimulate, or justify the use of such drugs, or B, stresses visually or by dialogue their temporary attractive effects, or C, suggests that the drug habit may be quickly or easily broken, or D, show details of drug procurement or of the taking of drugs of any manner, or E, emphasizes the profits of the drug traffic, or F, involves children who are shown knowingly to use or traffic in drugs. And this is like illicit drugs, just to clarify, right? Like, obviously not alcohol or cigarettes? Yeah, alcohol is already covered by a previous subsection, number four, uh, which has maintained total consistency in the code and has always stated, the use of liquor in American life when not required by the plot or for characterization shall not be shown. Mm-hmm. So only when necessary. Right. And then cigarettes not even yeah, nobody considered shit. anything. Yeah, and, no, yeah. no. Uh, Another added subsection here under crime is number 10. Stories on the kidnapping or illegal abduction of children are acceptable under the code only when A, the subject is handled with restraint and discretion and avoids details, gruesomeness, and undue horror, and B, the child is returned unharmed. (laughs) Really making people have to work with one hand behind their back here. Mm -hmm. I thought this was going to be a bit more lenient. It sounds like it's getting more strict. We're getting more specifics. Mm. A whole new section has been added. So section one is crime against the law. Section two used to be sex. Now sex is section three, because we've added a whole new section in as section two here in December of 1956. Brutality, uh, which... Which I always take before my sex, <laughs> but after my drugs. Right, yeah, that, that <laughs> makes sense. Um, now this section in its whole simply says, excessive and inhuman acts of cruelty and brutality shall not be presented. This includes all detailed and protracted presentation of physical violence, torture, and abuse. Okay. So what we're coming in here basically is their response to this like more lenient like exploitation movies or the foreign films or whatever is to come and say, no, 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 no. Just because they're like doing shit in France or like Italy showing all kinds of, you know, children getting kidnapped and beat up and thrown in ditches and killed or whatever doesn't mean you can get away with that shit here. Yeah. Under what is now section three, sex, uh, there have been some interesting revisions. So point four used to read sex perversion and any inference to it is forbidden. Um, stuff like homosexuality yeah. counts under sex perversion. That's been gotten rid of. Oh. And it's been replaced with a new point four. The subject of abortion shall be discouraged, shall never be more than suggested. 
and when referred to shall be condemned. It must never be treated lightly or made the subject of comedy. Abortion shall never be shown explicitly or by inference, and a story must not indicate that an abortion has been performed, and the word abortion shall not be used. <laughs> now, uh, point five under the sex section used to read, white slavery shall not be treated. That has been replaced with the methods and techniques of prostitution and white slavery shall never be presented in detail, nor shall the subjects be presented unless shown in contrast to the right standards of behavior. Brothels in any clear identification as such may not be shown. Can you clarify, because I'm sure we did when we originally talked about the code, but can you clarify what they mean by white slavery? They mean like women in like sex slavery. Like they're talking about like trade in like like human trafficking is what they're talking about. So they're trying to differentiate from slave trade. Right. By calling it white slavery. Well, that was just the term at the time for like what we now call like, um, sex trafficking. Yeah, exactly. Um, because you know, you couldn't say like, Oh, you can't show slavery in a movie because then like, you can't have like a movie set in like any time before the civil war. Right now, uh, here's, the really interesting one uh, okay. that actually would apply to this movie if this movie had managed to like get in in time, but it did not. Mm-hmm. So point six used to state miscegenation is forbidden. Mm-hmm. That's depiction of any sexual romantic relationships between races. So in the case of like America, they're mostly meaning white and black, right? Like that's what really they were caring about here, but it, it goes across the board. That's been gotten rid of. Okay. And instead, point six now reads, sex perversion or any inference to it is forbidden, which used to be point four. So um, so they're equating miscegenation with sex perversion? No, they've gotten rid of the prohibition on miscegenation. Okay, they've gotten just rid completely. Of it. Yeah, they've gotten rid of it. Um, and we've moved the prohibition on sex perversion, which would be homosexuality, but also like, I'm into kinky stuff or like whatever. I don't know. Um, pedophilia, all kinds of whatever. Um, that's been moved down from point four to point six so that we could put in all that stuff about abortion. Um, oh, wait. You said that that wouldn't matter to... Are there... Do the mole people try to fuck? <laughs> uh, no. Uh, but um, miscegenation is a plot point, sort of, in this movie, kind okay. of. It's it's dumb and it's bad, uh, but I'll get there. Okay. So, point seven used to read, sex hygiene and venereal diseases are not proper subjects for theatrical motion pictures. In 1951, that was changed to abortion, sex hygiene, and venereal diseases are not proper subjects for theatrical motion pictures. And so here in December 1956, this has been rewritten again to sex hygiene and venereal diseases are not proper subjects for theatrical motion pictures. Because now it we has have a, that whole section. Yeah, we have. Exactly, okay. exactly. They have gotten rid of two points, point eight and nine. And now there's just point nine. Uh, point eight used to be scenes of actual childbirth, in fact or in silhouette, are never to be presented. That's gone. <laughs> That's Joseph Breen being like, I don't want to see that shit. Yeah, so that's gone. So you can have childbirth in a movie now. Okay. Um, which means that point nine 
children's sex organs are never to be exposed has been moved up to point eight, but it's also had a little bit of rewriting done to it because they've added to that uh, point, this provision shall not apply to infants. Sure. So if you have a birth scene, you can have the kid be naked. It yeah, doesn't yeah, need the a kid doesn't need to get like, fun. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, you've got it. Section five. So skipping from, uh, well, I guess this would be section six now, uh, thanks to the addition of brutality. This used to cover profanity. And until 1956, it used to have like a big list of words that you couldn't say. <laughs> right. I remember. Now this just says vulgar expressions and double meanings having the same effect as vulgar expressions are forbidden. This shall include, but not be limited to such words and expressions as chippy, fairy, goose, nuts, pansy, SOB, son of a, the treatment of low, disgusting, unpleasant, though not necessarily evil subjects should be guided always by the dictates of good taste and a proper regard for the sensibilities of the audience. Nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Section seven used to be dances and had prohibitions on no dances, uh, sexy dancing, basically. Ah, Uh, So no, uh, no belly dancers, no strippers, none of that. No burlesque. Um, That section's just gone now. Dope. So you can have sexy dancing in your movies now. Section nine used to be locations, and it just used to say the treatment of bedrooms must be governed by good taste and delicacy. This has been replaced by a new section nine, special subjects. The following subjects must be treated with discretion and restraint within the careful limits of good taste. One, bedroom scenes. Two, hangings and electrocutions. (laughs) Three, Liquor and drinking. Four, surgical operations and childbirth. Five, third degree methods. Third degree methods? That's um, oh, enhanced like interrogation. interrogation. Sure. Yeah. One of these things is not like the other. Fair enough. Now, section 10, national feelings, has notes on how the flag has to be respected and how the institutions of all nations need to be respected and all that. It's had a new addition added to it which is a new point three. No picture shall be produced that tends to incite bigotry or hatred among peoples of differing races, religions, or origins. The use of such offensive words as a long list of racial slurs follows should be avoided. Should be. Yes. Section 11. uh, This is a section on titles. Used to say one, salacious, indecent, or obscene titles shall not be used. Two, titles which suggest or are currently associated in the public mind with material characters or occupations unsuitable for the screen shall not be used. And three titles which are otherwise objectionable. Uh, which seems like, you know, if maybe there was like a book that came out that was particularly racy or something, and you're not like adapting the book, but you're just like using a similar title to cash in, you can't do that. Um, this has been rewritten. And now it says, one, titles which are salacious, indecent, obscene, profane, or vulgar shall not be used. Two, titles which violate any other clause of this code shall not be used. So like... (laughs) The typist got tired at that point. (laughs) Well, it's just like, you know, you can't show abortions in your movie. So you can't like call your movie like The Aborted Mission. 
And it's like, yeah, but like it's a mission in like a war and like they're yeah. aborting the mission. And it's like, no, <laughs> you can't. So that's that's basically it okay. for our changes. Um, so this is the new code. So really what we have here is not so much a loosening up as a more specificity because now like I, I suspect what's going on here is like no one would have even thought to put some of these things in a movie before. It's like, well, of course you can't get away with these things. But now we have these like foreign films coming in where like people like have sex yeah. and stuff. So trying to be more specific because of the new material blurring the boundaries. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So uh, with that out of the way, let's talk about the mole people. <laughs> so the mole people is the latest in a number of sci-fi movie offerings from Universal International producer William Olland. And uh, we've talked about Alan before. Previous uh, pictures from him that we've seen uh, for the show have included The Black Castle, It Came From Outer Space, and the three Creature from the Black Lagoon movies. Okay. Um, he also produced the sci-fi film This Island Earth and the giant monster movie Tarantula, which was Universal's answer to them. So this is, you know, another one of his sci-fi movies. Um and uh, the screenplay for this one comes to us from Laszlo Gurig, a Hungarian screenwriter who emigrated to the U.S. in 1939 at age 36. His first film writing credit was for the 1942 anthology film Tales of Manhattan, and he was nominated for an Academy Award for his screenplay for 1945's The Affairs of Susan. Uh, however, through most of the 1950s, he was writing for television. This was, in fact, his first movie script in, like, 10 years. Oh, wow. Now, the script for the Mole People, in my opinion, is a bit bizarre. <laughs> How is that any different from, like, some of the other horror sci-fi movies we've seen? I consider this script to fall into a certain category of movie script that I like to call... I want you to know that I went to university <laughs> screenplays where there's just like a bunch of stuff in the movie. That's like just there so that you know that the writer went to university. Sure. So <laughs> the premise of the mole people is that the, you know, earth is semi hollow and that there's a secret underground civilization living down there. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to talk too much about like the history of hollow earth fiction and um, beliefs around like civilizations under the earth and the way that that sort of has slalomed between fiction and pseudoscience over the years. Um, there are still people today like famous comic book artist, Neil Adams who believe that the world is hollow. Oh my no. Yeah, he does. No. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, he believes that the world is hollow and expanding. And expanding. Yeah. Um, the reason why we're not going to talk about any of that is because the movie starts with a 10-minute lecture from a professor from the University of Southern California doing that. <laughs> giving you the background on the history of fiction about the hollow earths and things. That's exactly what I want in the first 10 minutes of my horror movie. Yeah. Um, so instead... Um, the element of this movie that I want to talk about and give some background about 
is just who that underground civilization is. Mm-hmm. So the mole people in this movie are a slave cast to the actual underground civilization. Uh, I don't know if we ever get an explanation for why they're mole people. I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> um, but the like masters of the mole people are a civilization of albino Sumerians. Um, is that to explain why they are played by white people? Well, <laughs> n- no, actually. Um, because, okay, so here's the thing. So I think they're albino Sumerians. I think the rationale is because, like, they live underground. Okay. So they, you know, have, like, pale skin now instead of having the darker skin of, like, you know, a... Uh, Middle Eastern person? A Middle Eastern person, yeah. But we'll see. I haven't seen this movie before, you see. <laughs> so we'll find out what all the explanations are. But the um, lead female character in this movie is one of them. And she's one of, like, these rare... Uh, instances where someone is born in the underground civilization who isn't albino. Um, So she has like the darker skin of their ancestors, except that she is also a white actress. Um, Darker than albino in this movie just means Caucasian. Sure. Um, So everyone's white people. And the whole point of like this lead female character is that she's looks more like a Caucasian person than an albino from a civilization that again would be like, Arabic, you know, or, or, you know, Semitic or like Middle Eastern. Uh, so brown people. So this is the miscegenation thing is, oh. is cause she falls in love with a surface man who is white. So we have a white person playing a white looking Sumerian from a race of whiter looking Sumerians who falls in love with a white guy. And that's miscegenation. Um, regardless, I'm talking a lot about Sumerians And so this movie uses a lot of elements from like heavy air quotes, Sumerian uh, mythology and culture. And if you have never heard of the Sumerians or any of the other um, similar civilizations from the same area of the world that they are usually conflated with, um, that's what we're going to like give you some background on right now. (laughs) Awesome. That Sumerian etc. Mm-hmm. kind of word that you're looking for is uh, Mesopotamian. Right. Mesopotamia is kind of a conglomeration of the Sumer, Babylonia, Akkad, and Assyria empires. Right. Civilizations. Yeah. We're talking about like Iraq mostly in terms of like geography. Yeah. Basically where Iraq is between Iran, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Turkey. Mm-hmm. So there's not many written records of Mesopotamian myth that uh, has survived today. Um, But what scholars have kind of put together around their religion was that it was polytheistic, kind of a a fluid hierarchy, depending on who was popular at the time. Yeah. And um, cities had uh, deity patrons um, or mascots, as I like (laughs) to think of them. (laughs) If, listener, you play D&D, you may recognize some of these names. Sure. Because they sound interesting and fantasy-like, so they get used in places. Um, But they come from uh, Sumer or Mesopotamian myths. So, for example, there's the Epic of Creation, where a god named Marduk killed the mother god Tiamat, 
uh, and used half of her body for the earth and the other half to create the heaven and the underworld and the heaven where the gods will live. I think the biggest cultural touchstone into today's culture uh, would be the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is kind of the earliest piece of written literature that we have found. It was written around 2100 to 1200 BCE on stone tablets and was discovered by Hormuzd Rassam uh, in 1853. Um, so he got to work translating it, and the Epic of Gilgamesh is about Gilgamesh, who is the king of Uruk, and his companion, Enkidu. Now, Gilgamesh wants to become immortal, and during his journey of figuring out, okay, what do I need to do to become immortal, with Enkidu joining him, um, he meets the goddess Ishtar and many other figures. Now, Ishtar I'm going to talk about in some more detail, because I know she's specifically named in the Mole People. In the epic of Gilgamesh, she wants to take him as a lover, and he's like, uh, I don't think so. You don't treat your lovers too well. So he turns her down, and she gets very upset about this, and so she sends a raging bull after him. Um, everything gets resolved, but Enkidu yells at Ishtar for, like, having hurt feelings, and he gets killed for it. Also in the Epic of Gilgamesh is the story of a great flood. So Gilgamesh meets the immortal man Utnapishtim, who is immortal with his wife. And Gilgamesh is like, okay, what did you guys do to get immortality? I want to do that too. And Utnapishtim explains that the gods sent a great flood and he was told by the god Enki to build a boat got all of the specifications, all of the blueprints. Um, so he made it and was told, put all the animals up there and um, kind of weather the storm. They survived the flood. It lasted for six days and nights. And then his boat crashed onto a mountaintop. Um, he does the whole release a dove, a sparrow, and a raven. And through that, he knows, okay, the flood waters have receded. Interestingly to me in this story is that the other gods are very angry with the god who created the flood, Enlil, and Ishtar, uh, who I mentioned before, she cries over the dead. The discovery of the Epic of Gilgamesh in 1853 sparked a lot of interest because the Victorians were like, my god, they have a great flood? Maybe this was actually Noah, mm -hmm. and we have actual historical evidence for Noah being real and therefore God being real. And that kind of led to this academic approach. I don't want to say just academic because it seems like it was a bit more than that. Um, but this belief in pan-Babylonism. Um, this belief of pan-Babylonism is that traces of Babylonian culture and myth and Babylonia is one of those places that's tied up in Mesopotamia. These cultures and myths have an influence on culture and religions around the world. You can trace major religions and cultural beliefs all the way back to Mesopotamia. Yeah, and this is sort of like informed by the idea that Mesopotamia, the other thing like you'll hear it called is like the cradle of civilization mm -hmm. and the... Euphrates Valley, where which like kind of defines Mesopotamia, is you know where like Eden is supposed to be in the yeah. Bible, and all of these locations 
in Mesopotamia are like the earliest locations that are mentioned in the Bible. And so, you know, in discovering these places, like in terms of archaeology, it's like, oh, you're discovering the city of Uruk. Well, that's mentioned in the Bible. And like, oh, there's this flood myth that sounds like Noah from the Bible. And it's like, it's like you're discovering these things that you were never sure were historical. And so I think the thinking becomes like, oh, well, this is where civilization started, period. Therefore, all things must therefore like logically tie back to this. Yeah. Um, now, this belief uh, was kind of dismissed by the time we hit World War One. I'm sure that there's a lot of scholarly debate even today about the merits of this, but it definitely comes off as the pseudoscience or pseudoscientific understanding of history or culture that a Hollywood screenwriter would be interested in. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so in the mole people, um, the civilization that's consistently referenced is Sumerians who were kind of the earliest of this like line of Mesopotamian civilizations that sort of goes like the Sumerians, the Akkadians, um, you have the Assyrians, you have the Babylonians that are all just like a successive series of civilizations in the same area. Like you mentioned how the hierarchy of the pantheon shifts depending on who's popular, but you also mentioned like the cities having patron gods. And that basically is just entirely like what city is the most politically powerful. Okay. Now their patron deity is the like top dog. Absolutely. And listener, if you're kind of familiar with like Greek and Roman gods where you have like the same myths and kind of the same deities, but they go through changes over time and like in different languages are called different things, but they're like, you know, like Venus and Aphrodite are basically the same thing. Absolutely. You get that here as well, where you have like a lot of deities with a lot of names, but like who are mythologically basically the same person. Absolutely. And you see that with Ishtar. Mm -hmm. Um, She... Uh, is also known as Inanna. Uh, that's her Sumerian name. Ishtar is the Babylonian and Assyrian name. And I think the reason she's mentioned in this movie is because she is because she has the most name brand value. Okay, interesting. She is mentioned in the majority of the myths that survive today. Um, now that could partly be because she was the most popular and, you know, the winner tells history. Right. Um, but there's also a good reason why she's considered like top dog. Mm. She is associated with love, beauty, sex, but not fertility, war, justice, and political power. Her two common symbols are of a lion as well as an eight-pointed star. Her main cult was centered in Uruk, Uruk was a leading city at the time, and with Ishtar being the mascot of the city, the patron of the city, um, a lot of her stories are a fictionalizing of the city's rise to economic and political power, which I think makes it make sense that she is t- talked about so much. Um, another reason why she was super popular is Sargon of Akkad was the first ruler of the Akkadian Empire, and is often identified as like the first person in recorded history ruling an empire. He really liked her. 
um, he was like number one fanboy. He stand Ishtar. I see. And um, because he personally held her above other deities, his people did too, and her cult grew in popularity. And Ishtar is also considered queen of heaven. Part of that is uh, the temple in Uruk is named, is called Iana, which means house of heaven. So her being queen of heaven, I think might not necessarily mean she's like Zeus, mm. you know, it might, she, it just means that she lives in the house of heaven, that mm-hmm. temple down the street, right? which I think is very funny. Um, and pr- uh, goes to show like when translations can go a little awry. Mm. Uh, I'm not a scholar or archaeologist in any of this, so <laughs> I'm just armchair theorizing here. Anyways. You know, the earliest civilization of this group is the Sumerians. And so I can see why, like, a screenwriter wants it to be, like, the Sumerians, like the the, the progenitors of civilization who are the story here. But he uses her Babylonian name, Ishtar. He doesn't use Inanna. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's because of the name brand thing that you're talking about. Um, because when these tablets with these writings were being discovered, um, the languages of, um, Akkadian, uh, Babylonian, Assyrian, like all those languages were all translated first, uh, way before Sumerian was because, um, Akkadian, which is the one that comes directly after Sumerian and then leads into Babylonian. Um, those are all Semitic languages, Mm -hmm. which means that they are related to like Hebrew and Arabic and, um, Aramaic and those languages that we, we still understand today. Um, whereas Sumerian is a language isolate, so it's not related to anything else. Yeah. So translating it was like this massive undertaking. Yes. And like for a long time, it was like considered to be like a big, like undoable thing. Like we've done it now and Mm -hmm. we have like the Epic of Gilgamesh and the original Sumerian in addition to like the later versions, but for a long time you couldn't do it. So the name of Ishtar would be like much, much better known than the name Inanna. So um, once this screenplay showing off Laszlo Gurig's university degree was written, um, we had to make the movie. So directing the picture is Virgil Vogel. And That's a great name. <laughs> he started out as an assistant editor at Universal in 1940. The first picture he worked on was The Invisible Woman. Uh, he made his way to becoming a full editor um one of the notable films that he edited was abbott and costello meet the invisible man in 1951 he also edited this island earth in 1955 the mole people was his directorial debut oh this is his first movie interesting in 1957 he would make the sci-fi adventure flick the land beyond with the same writer and producer as the mole people And in 1958, he became one of many editors that Universal assigned to work on Orson Welles' film Touch of Evil, uh, which the studio drastically altered from Welles' original intent. Vogel was editor number two of, I believe, four or five to ultimately work on the movie. Um, He worked on it before Welles was fired from the project and before they did, like, reshoots to, like, change the movie. Um he got brought onto it after Wells and the first editor did not get along. 
Vogel went on to have a very long career as a director, uh, directing television from the 1960s through to the 1990s. That's a long career. Yeah. Good for him. The film's star is 35-year-old actor John Agar, who we last saw as the lead in Revenge of the Creature. Yes, he was uh, the unintentionally chauvinistic doctor. Yes. Professor. He was the first husband of Shirley Temple and got into acting at the insistence of Temple's boss, David O. Selznick, who signed John Agar to a five-year contract when he married Temple in 1945. Ironically, his marriage lasted just as long, and after the divorce in 1950, Agar's career sort of floundered. Um, Temple divorced him due to his alcoholism. Uh, His career sort of floundered because nobody likes, you know, the ex-husband of America's sweetheart. It's like, how, how could you? Yeah. Um... In 1954, he signed a seven-year contract with Universal International, which led to his appearance in Revenge of the Creature. Uh, Since Revenge of the Creature, he's appeared in a number of other Universal B-movies, including as the lead in Tarantula. Our lead actress is 22-year-old Cynthia Patrick. Uh, She was born in California and got her start as a model before pursuing acting. Um, The Mole People was the fourth of six movies she made in 1956. Wow. Uh, those were her first six movies. Oh. Um, also her only six movies. Oh, dear. Uh, and she was only credited in The Mole People of those six. Ouch. Uh, she later appeared in an episode of Perry Mason as an unnamed character. Oh, as an unnamed... Oh, no. And then she quit acting and went into real estate. Yeah, that's fair. I, I hope she found better success there. Yeah, so this is her biggest role oh boy of her like career which lasted like a bit longer than a year our uh, supporting cast is filled out by a number of familiar faces we've got hugh beaumont who began acting in motion pictures way back in 1940 uh we saw him in 1943 in the seventh victim Mm. Uh, but the mole people would actually be one of his final movies because in 1957 beaumont assumed the role of ward cleaver the dad on TV's Leave it to Beaver from 1957 to 1963. Another familiar face in the cast for us is Alan Napier. Nice. Who we've seen many times, but most recently in The Strange Door in 1951. And he, of course, will become Alfred on TV's Batman 10 years from now. Another familiar face is Nestor Paiva, who was Lucas the boat captain in the first two Gilman movies. There's a lot of Caucasians playing albino Sumerians in this movie, as I pointed out uh, earlier. Yeah. Um, but there's a particular actor who I do want to point out who is not Caucasian, uh, Rod Redwing. Now, Redwing made a career playing indigenous characters in Westerns through the 1940s to 60s. He was well known as like a trick gunsman. Um, you know, he could do like all kinds of like trick shooting stuff. Um, But like many actors who made their careers playing indigenous people in Westerns in that era, he was not really indigenous. Oh. He was Indian, just not American Indian. He was East Indian. His real name was Roderick Rajpurkai Jr. I mean, it's not like he's going to get leading roles at this time. Yeah. Oh, it's it's, such a mess. Yeah, it's, it's. You know, you he can't find roles in Hollywood in this period as an Indian, but he can find roles in Hollywood in this period as 
an Indian. Yeah. You know? Rough. The odd one out in this film's cast... Why do you say it like that? ...is Professor Frank C. Baxter, who introduces the film. Oh, I see. That's why you said it like that. Uh, Born in 1896, Baxter had a degree in zoology and archaeology from the University of Pennsylvania and a master's in English from the same institution. He got his doctorate in English from Cambridge, and in 1930, he began teaching English literature at the University of Southern California, which he would do for the next 30 years. Yeah, yet tenure, you lost there for 30 years. He became an extremely popular teacher, uh, known for his very well-attended Christmas readings of Shakespeare and other authors, which became nationally famous and would continue even after he retired from teaching until his death in 1982 at age 85. Wow. From 1956 to 1962, he appeared as Dr. Research in the Bell System Science series of educational television programs. Mm. After airing on TV, these films were then sent free of charge to American schools so that Baxter became a universally known scientist icon among baby boomers, despite Baxter being an English professor. So basically, he's, he's Bill, the Nye Bill Nye the, the science, science guy. Now, the mole people costumes in this movie were created by Bud Westmore's special makeup department. They involve um, a rubber mask, some rubber hands. They also all have hunchbacks, which were created by just stuffing the back of their shirts with newspaper. Um, By this time, Millicent Patrick, who came up with the design for Gilman and It Came From Another World, she's no longer there, right? Yeah, she's not working for Universal anymore. Yeah, Westmore Um, forced her out. That's right. So this is just him and whatever other uncredited cronies he had. I'm going to be judging him gotcha. by these designs for because sure. he claimed credit for something he did not do. And I'm going to hold it against him until the day I die. For sure. Fair. Uh, the film was shot in 17 days on a budget of $200,000. Okay. Before the movie was released, uh, the ending had to be changed and reshot by the request of the production code authority because the main romantic couple in the movie was technically an example of miscegenation even though it was a couple of white actors you know if this movie had been made just a little bit later they wouldn't have had to change the ending and could have gotten around this but they had to reshoot the ending for an ending where they didn't end up together in the end that might make it more of a horror movie We'll see. Yeah. The Mole People was released on December 1st, 1956 on a double feature with the adventure flick Kurusu, Beast of the Amazon, written and directed by Kurt Seatmack. <laughs> oh, Kurt, how far you might have maybe fallen. <laughs> uh, the Mole People was the subject of episode three of season eight of Mystery Science Theater 3000. No surprise there. It's available on DVD in the classic sci-fi ultimate collection from universal home video and it's on blu-ray as of 2019 from shout factory okay i know that people there are a lot of people who consider the mole people a classic so i i am excited to see this at the same time nothing about this is making me go like this is going to stand out like a classic should yeah 
yeah, nothing about this is going like, oh, this will be interesting. I feel like it's just like, oh, hey, it's a new universal monster and we don't get a lot of those lately. Yeah. You know, but we'll see. Yeah. All right, creatures of the night, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss The Mole People from 1956, directed by Virgil Vogel. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Mole People from 1956, directed by Virgil Vogel. Ben, what did you think of this? Not good. Yeah, it wasn't good. Nope. Nope. Not horror either. Yeah. Solidly an adventure movie. Absolutely. Adventure sci-fi, not horror. Not horror. No. Uh, I don't know if I would even qualify this as sci-fi. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it, it would have been sci-fi in like 1860. Sure. But yeah, by 1950, this is pretty not sci-fi. This is just a throwback adventure movie. Um, just because it has a monster in it mm-hmm. and Universal released it does not make it a horror movie. Yes. Sort of like just because it's silent and has shadows in it doesn't mean it's German expressionism. Yes. Um, I really hope we don't get like a lot of pushback from the public, Mm. capital P public. I feel like our listeners will be like understanding, even if they feel in their hearts that this is a horror movie. Just for us, it is not because it does not hit any of our criteria. No. Yeah. Like if you have like a commemorative set of glasses of like the universal monsters and like one of them is a mole person. And so you're like, therefore like this is classic, you know, horror or whatever. No, just like watch the movie, just like watch the movie. It's not, (laughs) if this is horror, then like they should be playing episodes of star Trek, the original series, like after 11 PM on tv because they are are horrific yeah yeah just just the same mm-hmm. uh all right let me give out the plot okay and yeah. then we can discuss yeah so as ben kindly explained in the context setting we have an opening from dr frank baxter giving exposition about the theories of underground civilizations i will say he is quite engaging. Definitely a proto Bill Nye. I enjoyed it, honestly. And then we get the title The Mole People. Archaeologists Dr. Roger Bentley, Dr. Judd Bellaman, Professor Etienne Lafarge, and Dr. Paul Stewart are in Asia somewhere. It, it has to logically be Iraq, but the movie just doesn't trust the intelligence of American audiences. And it's just like, it's in Asia. I don't know if Iraq qualifies as being in Asia, because that's obviously the Middle East. But where's the line between? Traditionally, um, in terms of like traditional understandings of what Asia is, the line would be 
like the Red Sea, like, you know, like the Suez Canal, like the the difference between like Africa and like Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia. Yeah. 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 I guess we are on the eastern side of the Suez Canal. So I guess this counts as Asia. Yeah. Like traditionally, like the name Asia originates with like the Greeks as describing like what we now call the Middle East. Like oh. the, the the name Asia like grew to expand because it was just meant to be like everything east of us. Yeah. Really. Everything over there. Yeah. Yeah. There were three continents and it's Asia, Europe, and Africa, which are basically everything north of us, east of us, and south of us. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I did not know that. Yeah. Anyway, so they're in Asia digging for Mesopotamian artifacts. There is an earthquake after they find this tablet that's like, whoever disturbs this tablet shall get the revenge of Ishtar. Um, And this earthquake unearths some other artifacts up a local mountain. So, mountain expedition, we go up there. There's avalanches, stock footage galore. Once we get up to where we find a Mesopotamian temple, uh, Dr. Stewart falls through a crevasse to his death to his death like it's hundreds and hundreds of feet and they're like no we'll go in and see if he's okay he's like nah dudes i don't know if they ever say we'll see if he's okay they do just decide to like go down there yeah but like then they express surprise that he's dead i don't know if it's surprise so much as confirmation but (laughs) so they go down as they're heading down there is a cave-in which kills their guide nazar so the people we have left is Bentley, Bellamin, and Lafarge, and they are trapped underground. As they try to navigate and find their way out, they discover an ancient Sumerian culture living underground. And it's clear that an earthquake had caused the city to kind of go underground, have like a roof over top. And the people living there describe how, you know, this is the world here, our city, and above is heaven, and further below is, like, the underworld. Now, the Sumerians, mainly personified via the king and the high priest, decide we're going to kill Bentley and company um, because they're different, because we're all albinos and they look different. Um, So Bentley and company escape, um, and as they escape, they see the Mormon and them being slaves for the Sumerians to go dig for like mushrooms and be like hard labor kind of stuff. Lafarge has been having what I would describe as a low key panic attack this entire time that's been growing. Um, And he finally like loses it, runs through a tunnel and actually gets killed by a mole man. So Bentley and Bellamin bury him. And they also find that they are able to fight off or ward off, really, Molmen and the Sumerians using uh, this very powerful flashlight that Bentley has. Now, the Sumerians, as we kind of mentioned in the, in the context setting, are like albino. Yeah. And this is explained because, like, they've been living underground for 3,000 years. And they're sensitive to the light because their eyes have kind of developed to be in, like, low-light yeah. Yeah. situations. They have dark vision, and so they have, like, sunlight <laughs> sensitivity, so they have disadvantage on roles when they're in direct sunlight. Um so the thing is, is like they're recognizably people. The mole people are mole people. Yeah, honestly, they don't really look like moles. Their hands do, but their faces look like they have 
bug eyes that are like shiny and then they have like sort of mandibles yeah they've got like uh like a vertical mouth thing going on Mm -hmm. um you know who they look like they look like uh, Ponda Baba, the alien who pushes Luke Skywalker around in the Moss Eisley Cantina and gets his arm chopped off by Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yes. Yeah, they look like him. Oh, my God. Was that a leftover Mole Man costume? No, no, it's a it's a different design. Trust okay, me. Okay, cool, cool. But um, the thing about it is they're mole people and like they find skeletons of them at one point. <laughs> That are like human skeletons with weird looking um, skulls. Like and, tall skulls and, and then, then like, like claws. Long, yeah, long claw hands. But like they're just they're just mole people. Yeah, they don't speak. They aren't they, explained. They, yeah, and they seem to have maybe like a little bit of reasoning faculties, but not much. It's it's like if like they could have been like snake people or like rabbit folk or like anything. Like Listen, Ben, we are underground. Yeah. The moment. No, no, I get what you mean. <laughs> I, I'm just trying to say that, like, there's just, like, no explanation. Mm. And at no point does any character say, like, hey, what the fuck is up with those mole people? Yeah. Like, it's just like, oh, yeah, they have mole people as slaves. Yeah. It's just you a know. given. Yeah. As, as you would you have do. expected. Exactly. It, there is something along the lines of, like, the mole men have been slaves for so long and that's maybe why they have lost their reasoning faculties or their ability to speak right, or something. Right, but that something. doesn't explain why they're mole men. Yeah, it doesn't explain their origin. Yeah. There's no, like, radioactivity. Yeah, it's not, like, there's nothing. There's nothing. They're yeah. just mole people that the Sumerians have as slaves. And, and it's wild considering that, like, the title of the movie is The Mole People. And the sense that I get, quite honestly, is that, like... They're in this movie because we need a monster. Absolutely. And that's it. It's like uh, this planet Earth or whatever the fuck. The Yeah, this island Earth with the Metaluna mutant. Yeah. Yeah, like you could replace the mole people in this movie with just like regular slaves. And... Um, that might make people uncomfortable. Yeah, then. that's true. Like the, 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 the role that the mole people are serving is to remove any like uncomfortable racial historical overtones to slavery. Yeah. But that's like about it. Like in terms of the story, there's nothing that requires them to, you know, be mole people. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get back to the plot summary and we can yeah, keep discussing later. Yeah. No, it's all good. Um, okay. So because they have this flashlight, the Sumerians believe that Bentley and company to have the eye of Ishtar and for them to be gods. Cause they come from above. It's like road to El Dorado up in here. Um, even so much so that they uh, get like a girl. Uh, this girl that they meet is like someone who was like serving them at the banquet and she's considered to be marked because she is not albino. She's blonde, <laughs> but she has regular skin. Uh, her name. Regular white person skin, regular Caucasian skin. <laughs> That's fair. Um, her name is Adad and um, they go to like beat her because she like trips or whatever the fuck. And they're like, no, Ishtar says no to slavery. And they're like, okay, you like her, you can have her. Yeah. Um, so then she gets to like serve them at their house. So the high priest, played by Alan Napier, doesn't believe that they're immortal because he's like, that's bonkers. And the king is being dumb. And if they're truly sent by Ishtar, then um, we should, as the proper people of Ishtar, should have their flashlight. Yeah, he basically figures out that like they're not like 
celestials. They're just like people because they eat and they sleep and they have fear. And yeah. they just clearly have like a magic item that we can just take from them. Which I will say, one thing that I learned when I was doing research about Ishtar mm. and like Mesopotamian gods, like mm. religion, is that the gods are like better than other people, but they still are fallible. Yeah, yeah. And they still like eat and sleep and yeah. shit. Yeah, I mean, that's... I guess they probably shit too, but I mean like the stuff. <laughs> that's very common for like basically like most like pantheon religions, like the Greek pantheon, the Norse mm -hmm. pantheon, like that's a very common thing. And especially in Mesopotamian religion where there's kind of a blurring of lines between like gods and kings, you know, like the old kings become gods and mm -hmm. stuff. So yeah, but whatever. anyways, so because Bentley and company are here and are like no to slavery and stuff, and they try to like stand up for the mole people, the mole people are starting to get a little rebellious. So um, the high priest and the king are like, man, if we don't get enough food, we're going to have to cut down the population because they have like a cap. Yeah, there's you only know, like, it's like traditional like underground societies we have a cap to our population. Yeah. There's only so much mushrooms that you can make underground beneath a volcano to like feed a civilization. Yeah. So they're like, okay, well let's sacrifice these three girls to appease Ishtar to get the mole people under control. Um, and so these girls go into the light of Ishtar, a boarded up door. They go in and when they come out uh, or when they're brought out, they are like covered in burns. Yeah, they're they're nuked. They've been microwaved. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty intense. Meanwhile, Lafarge's body has been found, and that confirms to the high priest that these boys are mortal. So they get drugged and taken to the light. Meanwhile, Adad is like running around scared because her two gods, lords, have been kidnapped. I guess. So she goes running around to like where the mole men work and then it's unclear, but this is what I think happens. She trips and falls and the mole people grab her and suck her underground. Next thing we know, the mole people uh, start rising up against the Sumerians um, and Adad runs onto set from off screen. Totally fine. So I think they brought her for the revolution. I don't know. Yeah, like, it's, it's, it's like super Bentley unclear. and company made friends with like one of the mole people. So maybe they're like, oh, she looks like them. So like we won't hurt her. Well, and, and the whole time that like she's been with Bentley, he's basically been doing what Captain Kirk does in every episode of Star Trek where they've been like held captive by like a alien civilization, which is he's been like introducing a dad to like the ideas of freedom and love and I, I what is love lord i have no idea why she doesn't know what love is they're just humans they're just yeah. regular humans they aren't fucking aliens anyway he's been introducing her to love and freedom and that's sort of like a subplot and then she, i think you're right that she's supposed to have tripped and falled but it kind of looks like she just purposely face plants into the dirt near a mole person who drags her down i feel she's not like, a good actress no no, Cynthia Patrick is not a good actress. The fact that this is the only movie where she has like a character with a name is not surprising. She's very bad. And I suspect that's why this bit doesn't make sense. Because I feel like what was supposed to happen is they dragged her down 
And then because she learned about freedom from Bentley, she teaches them about freedom and then they rebel. But I'm sure that like whatever scene where she was supposed to give like a fucking Captain America speech about like freedom and liberty just didn't play well because she can't act. And so they were just like, yeah, whatever. And cut it. That's my guess. (laughs) So anyways, it's the revolution and the more people overtake the palace, they overtake the king, they overtake the high priest, the high priest does have the flashlight and he tries to use it, but it's out of batteries. <laughs> uh, so they get killed. Adad tries to get to like the light of Ishtar room and the mole people help her. Oh, that's so sweet. She gets through and she's reunited with Bentley and Bellamin. And they're like, see, it's, it's actually the sunlight coming down from outside and it burns up the Sumerians, but we're regular people. So like, let's climb up and get out of here. So they do that. And they're like, oh, great. Here's our gear still. They suit up. They're ready to start trekking down the mountain when suddenly earthquake. And Adad freaks out. She starts running around like a chicken with their head cut off. And she gets crushed by falling columns. And this is the ending that Ben alluded to or told us about in the context setting because, you know, can't have miscegenation. So, and they don't even, like, give her lines. She, like, looks up from underneath the columns and then dies. Yeah, no, yeah th- there's it's, a spot where she's clearly supposed to have, and, and like, a final line, anything. and she doesn't say anything, no. And then she dies, and that's the end. It's so bad. It's The ending is so bad because it's so clearly something that they, like, went back and shot in, like, an afternoon, and it, it makes no sense. Like, first off... And I I know I've already said this a few different times, but the miscegenation thing is such a weird line to draw in this movie, given that the entire point of her character basically is I'm blonde. Yeah. Like I'm a white girl among the Sumerians. And it's not like the albino Sumerians are being played by, you know ethnically appropriate actors like they're all being played by white people so this is like just covered in flour right so this is miscegenation on a complete and utter like technicality yeah and she has to die for it and they didn't do (laughs) any work at all to like have her death be thematically relevant or like anything so she doesn't really do anything in the movie to quote-unquote deserve death by like the rules of Hollywood movies. Um, I don't think an audience in 1956 would have even clocked her as being like a different race, quote unquote, because she's again, blonde. Then when it comes time for her to die, like it it would be bad enough if it was just like, and then as they were escaping, a column fell on her and she died, you know, (laughs) like, but what happened, she died on the way back to to her her home home planet. planet. Yeah, exactly. But, the earthquake happens and in order for her to die what she does is she runs away from the two men back towards the mountain and the ruins the source of the earthquake then she like has to like specifically turn a corner and go down some stairs into like a lower area so that she'll be below where a already fallen column is like perched on like a little like cliff so that it can roll off the cliff and roll onto her and this like falling column looks like it's maybe like four to five feet long and like a foot across and it just sort of rolls over and just kind of like hits her 
And then she just kind of lies down under it. Yeah, there's no, like, scream. She, it doesn't look big enough or that it had enough force to kill yeah. her. And for it to kill her, it's not even a thing where, like, she happened to be in its path. Like, she basically has to explicitly run into a spot where it can kill her, which makes no sense. And then they don't make any effort to, like, pull it off of her, even though, like, the way that she's been hit by it, it just hit her legs. So even if it was like super heavy, even if it wasn't Hollywood styrofoam column and it was actually like rock, like she's got broken legs, but there's no reason she needs to be dead. Like, it's just, it's so bad. It's so bad. Yeah. They, there was some neat stuff with light and yeah. lighting. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I like that it was like relevant to the plot as well. Like as they're going through these caves, you know, it's very stark lighting. We have a little bit of light on the actors, but then the main light is from the flashlight. And it reminded me of that movie. I think it was like Condemned to Live or something where it's like as soon as he's in total darkness, he like turns into a vampire oh, or whatever. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. But they didn't know how to do dark, stark lighting at that point. Right. Because it was like... 1928 or whatever the fuck and this was like no like we can actually pull this off um so i did appreciate that that was neat the reason why i kind of go off on like how the mole people don't have an explanation yeah is because this movie goes out of its way to explain some things and then doesn't explain others see the things that it explains are related to I went to university and learned about the Sumerians and the Epic of Gilgamesh. But it's, there's also stuff where they're trying clearly to like explain to an audience like how a civilization could survive underground, right? Sure. Which like is a stock trope of hollow earth stories, but no one ever really fucking thinks about it, right? So it's like, okay, well, they eat mushrooms and the rocks that are around their city are phosphorescent and give off light. And all the things that if you've ever run a game with the drow in D&D, you'll be like, oh, you They're mean the like drow. the drow? Yeah. Um, they even have goats. They even have goats underground goat somewhere. And that's how they make their clothes. Like they go to all this effort to kind of explain to you how they do certain things. They even do a thing where they do like a universal translator thing of like explaining how we can talk to them, which is fairly clever in the sense that like, Throughout the movie, everyone talks English all the time, just like you'd expect in a B-movie. But at one point, there's an exchange between, like, the king and the priest and the scientists that's like, how can you speak our tongue? And they're like, oh, we learned your tongue in school. And it's clear that, like, whenever we see Bentley and co. talking to the Sumerians, like, they're speaking Sumerian that's being, like, translated into English for the audience's benefit, basically. Um and then whenever they're speaking amongst themselves, they're probably just back to speaking English. It's all English in the movie, though. And so it's like, okay, that's cool. And it, like, makes sense. Like, they're the archaeologists, so they would be one of the few people who speak, quote-unquote, Sumerian. We don't know what Sumerian sounds like. Yeah. Um, we only know it from, like, cuneiform writing. Um, but, like, because the movie goes out of its way to explain certain things, it makes the things they don't explain stand out more. Yeah. Like the the more that you explain stuff, the more you're signaling to me like take me seriously, and the more you're telling me to take you seriously, the more I'm going to notice the stuff that's bullshit. Yes. In my notes here I have world building, I don't know her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like once you bring up the language thing, you make me go, 
Right, but it's been 3,000 years. So you're telling me the Sumerian language hasn't changed in 3,000 years? Their culture hasn't changed in 3,000 years? Like nothing about this has developed or advanced? And like also that like their conversations are perfect. It's not like the Americans speak with like an accent or sound weird to them. Um, But also, hmm... Like, again, like, who are the mole people and, like, what's yeah, the deal? That's and, like, really what it comes down to. And, and, and also, like, somehow over the course of 3,000 years, like, okay, okay, here's the thing. Yeah. For one thing, we didn't need the Hollow Earth Professor lecture at the start no. because this isn't a Hollow Earth story. The city was on top of a mountain because these are the flood survivors. This movie presents the biblical flood as a for true historical event there's like a line of dialogue where they're like it's a proven yeah. historical fact which is not true and bentley says something along the lines of like these guys met an earthquake noah's boat survives right because the backstory of these sumerians is that the flood happened and king fictional king sharu uh gathered his people and all the two of every animal blah 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 onto an ark and just like Noah, and just like the actual Sumerian flood myth, which this isn't, um, end up on top of a mountain at the end of the flood. And then in this version of the story, instead of just like Utnapishtim living on top of a mountain forever till like Gilgamesh comes and finds him, or Noah doing his thing, um, they make a city up there. And then an earthquake happens, and the city like collapses into the earth and like gets like volcano sealed up in like a little bubble down there, you know, and then they just continue to live down there for 3000 years. Right. The movie presents the Sumerian civilization as if it's a pre flood civilization where like, cause the whole thing is like the last King is King Sheru and who knows what happened to him and his civilization. And it's like, Oh, it turned out they went down into this hole in the ground. The Sumerians are not a pre flood civilization even if we accept the flood as a historical fact because the reason why we know the sumerian flood myths is because we have stories from the sumerians about the flood right which means they're they're post flood yeah and then the thing is is if they have a big chasm that this whole time in the last three thousand years just led up to the surface that like is surmountable enough that like fucking bentley and co can just climb up it without even a rope Nobody thought to do that in 3,000 years. They were just like, no, let's use this as a microwave to kill sacrifices. <laughs> they have a line that's like, oh, the high priest knew the whole time. Right. And as things went down, like he either forgot that it was the surface or just kept up the charade and be- eventually believed it himself. Yeah, yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's, it's very dumb. And it's, it's, the movie is too dumb for how smart it wants you to think it is. Yeah. Because, yeah, like, this isn't a hollow earth. This is a cave. They live in caves under a mountain, right? It's a hollow mountain, not a hollow earth. (sighs) The movie's just very dumb. Yes. Even though it's wanting you to think it's smart. And the smarter it wants you to think it is, the dumber it is. Like, what I'm saying is... If this was just like some kooky adventure movie where we like went down and we found the lost civilization underground or whatever and they rode dinosaurs or who cares, like I wouldn't ask any questions, right? I would just accept it. I'd be like, it's just like a dumb hollow earth story, whatever. But the more you try to like 
explain it and be like, no, 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 no. Like this is really possible or whatever. The more I'm going to take you at your word and be like, okay. So then how does it work? Right. Exactly. Yeah. I think the more men design is all right. They shouldn't have humps on their back because big eyes. Well, like the big eyes, like whatever, but like the, cause they have like the silvery thing. So maybe it's like shielding from the dirt. I don't know. Yeah. Whatever. Who gives a fuck? Sure. But these humps, like if you're going to be digging through the dirt, you're not going to have like a hump on your back. You're going to want to be like dynamic. Yeah, exactly. Like moles are. Yeah. This is the thing is the thing that makes them not look like moles is that they don't have snouts. They just have like a flat human face. Like that's the main thing. Their mouths are creepy and that's cool. And the way that they use their claws is creepy and that's cool. But otherwise they don't really make sense as mole people. They're not really good monsters in like, they are scary and threatening to our characters in like the first bit of the movie after we get underground, it does take a while for us to get underground in this movie. Yeah. Um, the more we see of them, the less threatening they become. And then they yeah. become our buddies who lead the revolution or whatever. Yeah. They're all men. I think all the mole men are men. Yeah. I mean, they're all dressed in shirts and pants. <laughs> and the majority of the Sumerians seem to be men. Um, we do get a sexy dance. That's from true. From an Orion slave girl. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's very Star Trek, even down to like, like specifically original series yes. because the rocks have like the sparkles on them like you could almost just hear like Ooh, yeah yeah going on in the background like it's very star trek yeah it's it's entirely like you could imagine this with kirk and spock and the gang and it would be better um because it would be an hour long for one thing because we wouldn't have to like go up a mountain and then down a mountain to get here we'd just like beam down and then like yeah, Bentley falls in love with this like rando blonde girl who he teaches the meaning of love and freedom to. And then we lead the monsters who were misunderstood this whole time to like a revolution because the priests Spock, uh, mind melds with Yeah, them. and like, you know, the priests are superstitious and that's bad because religion is bad because this is Star Trek. And like, it would have been better because it would have been shorter and I would have had like Shatner and Nimoy and DeForest Kelly here instead of... Um, John Agar and company, none of whom put like any effort into no. this movie at all. Alan, and the the light of um, Ishtar room would be a giant computer. Right. Yes. That was secretly controlling the civilization. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like John Agar is not doing anything here. No, he does not give a shit. Cynthia Patrick can't act. Alan Napier's having fun for a while, but even you, you get the impression he even he gets bored after a while. Um, Hugh Beaumont is just there. Like, nobody's doing anything, anything. with this. Um, the cast is bad. Lafarge is actually pretty good. He th- yes. He does give a good performance of prolonged panic attack. Yeah, he's good. I think because he's, like, probably a very experienced character actor. Yeah. A dad is a bad character. Yes. Um, her death makes her worse as a character because if the point of the story wasn't we've brought one of these like people back up to the surface and like reunited this person with their like intrinsic humanity. If that's not the purpose of the story, like what's the point of the story? Like that's the real thing here is like, there's no point to this story. Like there's kind of like a slavery is bad kind of theme here. But like professor Baxter at the start of the movie is like, this movie has a theme and a moral that is important for everyone. And it's like, is it slavery's bad? Because 
That's kind of all that's here. Honestly, the stuff with the light and Dr. Baxter at the beginning Mm. were probably the most engaging parts of this. And that's saying something. Yeah, the mole people are fun, but they're underused. I like when they come digging out of the earth to, like, start the revolution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fun. It was just, like... Wow, they they made that many costumes. Yeah, yeah. That's where the budget went. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> it 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 is a movie that like sometimes looks very expensive and sometimes looks very cheap. Like there's this big set where like the mole people come in and out of holes in the ground and there's like smoke coming out of the holes and stuff where it's like, "Oh, this is like a big set." And like they have this big temple set that they're using but the temple set is clearly reused from previous movies because it's covered in very Egyptian hieroglyphics. Yeah. Like, these do not look like cuneiform. Those don't look like albino Sumerians. <laughs> like, it's very Egyptian. So, like, and the matte paintings are kind of, like, bad. The matte paintings look like matte sketches. Yeah, they don't have detail to them. They don't look real. They look like someone... Sketches, yeah, as they, you said. Yeah. So, this is a bad movie. It's not a horror movie. It's not ranking. Yeah. Do we have anything else we want to say about it? Um, just that if anyone listening has an alternative position or opinion about the mole people, uh, you can submit an appeal uh, by going to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can submit the appeal through our ask box, or you can reach us through email at screamscenepodcast.gmail.com or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are sold by subscribing to our RSS feed. If you enjoy the show and would like to help us out, you can do so by spreading word of the show. Word of mouth is how we grow our audience. Um, You can do that by leaving us a rating or a review on whatever app you're using to listen to us you can do it by sharing the show online on social media um you know to your friends to your family to your coworkers. everyone should know about scream scene if you really appreciate what we do um you can help us out in a monetary sense by heading over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast there you can sign up to be a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month that goes towards helping us uh, pay our hosting fees, um, having the time to set aside to research and make these episodes. Uh, we just bought new gear. Uh, there's a post on the Patreon now about our new gear and why we picked what we did. So if you're a patron, you can go and read that. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to bonus audio, bonus writing, all kinds of cool nifty projects uh, that we've done in the four five years we've been doing this we're almost at episode 200 ben so that's nearly so four-ish at years yeah cool um so that's patreon.com slash scream scene podcast what are we watching next week ben next week sarah we are back to a roger corman double feature so we got okay. two weeks of roger corman ahead of us and uh the first the a picture of of the double feature the one we'll be watching first is attack of the crab monsters. From moles to crabs. <laughs> Wonderful. We will see you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.